to the book of the Revelation, chapter 4. Revelation, chapter 4. We have been studying on Sunday evenings, and I think maybe a couple of Sunday mornings, I've dealt with our studies in the book of Revelation, but I, we have thus far considered the things which are primarily, that is, well, back in chapter 1, verse 19, where you find the divine outline of the book of the Revelation, where John is commanded to write the things which he had seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. Uh, We have already seen uh, what uh, the scripture denotes as the things that are, that is in relation to the book of Revelation, uh, the great vision that John had of our Lord while on the Isle of Patmos. And then he moved into uh, what we have already considered and studied The letters are the messages to the seven churches of Asia, and that is the things that are. Now in chapter 4, we begin the third section of this book of Revelation, which deals with the prophetic aspect of the word, and it deals with the things, as the verse says, which shall be hereafter. If you will, let's read, beginning in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 4, And we read beginning this new section that deals with the things that will be hereafter. Verse 1, and the Bible reads like this. After this, or literally, after these things, I looked. And behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither. And I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and like a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And the word seats here is literally the word thrones as well. And upon the seats or thrones I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second like a calf, the third had a face as a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. 
For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Now, as we begin looking at this fourth chapter of Revelation, I think because it begins a new section as far as the division of the book is concerned, I need to give you just briefly a brief overview of what we have talked about. We have already considered the letters to the seven churches which literally cover what we know as this present age of grace. That is the age in which you and I are now living. The age of the church. You'll find that the church is not mentioned again in the book of Revelation until the very latter part of the book of the Revelation. It is not mentioned nor referred to as far as its being on earth is concerned. The vision that we have before us in chapter 4 is literally a division of divine, or a vision of divine government. Here, it is a, a government that, and judgment that deals with the nation of Israel and with the peoples of this earth. But I remind you, not with the church. Judgment has already been taken for those who are part of the body of Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation, is the same word for judgment, to those who are in Christ Jesus. The Lord Jesus has already taken your judgment for you if you are one of his. But here you'll find, beginning in chapter 4 and following all the way down through almost the remainder of the book of Revelation, you'll find that God judges this world as a result of their having crucified his only begotten son. We will not have this man rule over us, the world has cried. And yet there is coming a day when God will put down the rebellion of man who has for long rebelled in his heart and in his life, in his conduct, in his actions against the Lord God. We might say that the day you and I are living in is man's day. But I want to tell you, God's day is coming. And there is a day, uh, that day that is described here is a very fearful and a very fearsome time of divine judgment. The first scene then that we have before us here in chapter 4 beginning here, we are given a vision of what is occurring in heaven. It is a vision of the throne of God. And showing to us, literally, that the throne of God, or if you please, the government of God is in absolute control throughout the entirety of his judgment upon this earth. A throne indeed does speak in a sense of government. It speaks of authority. And so we have before us a vision of the throne of God. You'll find that after this vision, John begins to unveil to us the distinct judgments that God is going to pour out upon this earth. And he does it in a series of three as he designates them. The, the seals are broken and judgment follows each seal. 
Also, there is the trumpet judgments, and judgment follows the sounding of these seven trumpets, seven seals, seven trumpets, and then there is the description of his judgment in what is known as the vials, the pouring out of the vials of the wrath of God, and there are seven of those. And you'll find this number seven is very significant in the book of Revelation. It is a number of perfection or a number of completeness. You'll find then that the world becomes increasingly more and more wicked and godless. Lawlessness actually in this period comes to its full bloom and ahead. That lawless attitude that even prevails in this day and age. That, that men, uh, that attitude of spurning and, and shunning and ignoring and even holding in contempt the very law and the word of Almighty God. I tell you, there is coming a day when men will be judged who have flaunted the word of God and the truth of God and the law of God. That time when men, uh, when lawlessness will have brought, come to full bloom, I think will be the outgrowth, the full bloom of what you and I are hearing today in our world, the teachings of humanism, the teachings of the New Age movement, that man is a God and is a law unto himself, flaunting the law of God, ignoring the person of God, So that will continue until God steps in with an act of divine judgment upon this very world. Now then before us, I think you have noted as well as we have read that here in heaven is a scene of worship. That these, these, uh, as John, as our version calls them, the beasts. And literally the term, if you'll notice here, the word beast is more rightly understood as living creatures not beasts, and I think the word may be misleading in our minds. We're thinking of some animal. But the word in the Greek language denotes living creatures. In other words, angels are living creatures. Uh, You and I are living creatures. And so the word beast might be a little misleading, and you might insert the term living creatures in the place of the word beast. But here you'll find that all of these living creatures The cherubim, the angelic host, all bow down in an act of worship before God who is seated on the throne. Worship indeed is an experience that ought to be ours as children of God. Yet I fear, as I have said oftentimes, that I fear that few Christians ever really experience a real, genuine time of worship in their hearts before God. Now, you can come to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night and be faithful in your attendance and still not have a real experience of worship before God in your own heart. What does real worship involve? What does it include? Let me just suggest one or two things, and I'm not go in depth at all, but let me suggest that first, worship has to do with the willingness of the heart. We come before God to worship Him, to praise Him, to glorify Him, to adore Him, to offer Him our gratitude. We do that out of a willing heart. God loves a willing heart, and that's what He looks for. A lot of people go through the motions of of subscribing to the law of God, maybe because of peer pressure, because of the group they're in, or because of the church they're in, but that's not what pleases God. 
The thing that pleases God is when we serve him and we worship him willingly. The thing that delights the heart of God is that if you're here today, you're here because you willingly came. Not because you're afraid the preacher would come knock on your door in the morning if you weren't here. But the fact that you willingly came out of a heart that is in love with the Lord Jesus. I think worship involves not a willingness, but it involves an attitude of wonder in our hearts. We bow in awe before this great and wonderful God whom we worship. A God who is all-powerful. A God who knows all things. A God who is present everywhere. A God who never changes. He changes not. And yet we bow before him in wonder and awe as we think upon him. And indeed, worship involves the matter of the object we worship or the person we worship as being worthy. Here you'll find in the verses that we've read, the great acclaim and exclamation of praise was that thou art worthy. Thou art worthy. He indeed is deserving of our praise. But worship involves other things. It involves obedience. It involves the obedience of the heart. A heart that is saying, Lord, your will in my life. Uh, worship as well involves offering. Uh, nowhere in the Old Testament when Israel came to worship God in the temple of the tabernacle, they always came with an offering. If there were uh, whatever, uh, whoever came from wherever they came, there was that offering. And yet we offer certainly many things to God. If God has blessed us materially, we ought to offer that in worship to God. That's an act of worship. When we offer our material goods, we offer our talent, our ability, our time. We're offering something unto God. And then worship involves the matter of righteousness. No man can really truly worship God who has not been declared righteous by that very God. And the, the only way a man is declared righteous, according to the Bible, is by reason of a man putting his faith and his trust in Jesus Christ. We are declared righteous on the basis of his righteousness in whom we have trusted. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30, And he has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In other words, Jesus having been received is all of this to us. And so if we're to worship indeed rightly, there must be righteousness in the heart. That is, we must be born again. No man can really worship God who has rejected God. No man can really worship the Savior who has rejected the Savior. What kind of worship would that be? That would be hypocrisy. And so then worship involves righteousness, but it involves spirit as well. And I mean by that it involves the heart. It involves the heart. It involves not only the suggestion of the heart as we worship God, loving with all our heart, our soul, our mind, our body, our strength. Ah, oh, we love him. But yet if we're to worship God truthfully, we must, as Jesus said, worship him in spirit and in truth. By means of the very Holy Spirit residing within the believer, we lift our hearts in praise to him. No man can really worship God in nothing more than rigid formality and ceremony. There must be the working and the ministry of the Holy Spirit within us to open our eyes to him ere we worship. The Bible said, and they that worship him, in, uh, they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And Jesus said, and the Father seeketh such to worship him. We come by the Spirit of God, in the truth of God, and with our whole heart, we're worshiping Him. 
Worship involves the idea of humility. There is humility. No man worships God with an arrogant, proud heart. And humility, as I've said to you time and again from this pulpit, is the idea of a man surrender to God, submission to God, an utter and absolute dependence upon God for everything. He worships God in an air of humility. And worship involves integrity. It involves honesty in the heart. No man can worship God who is dishonest with God. And that involves the idea of being honest with God and about our sin. Ah, oh, foolish we are if we come before God to worship Him and there is no sin in our life. God teaches us that we're to confess that. We're to turn from that, repent of our sin. And if we'll confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us. So worship involves and includes the idea of integrity. And I like to think as well it involves the idea of intensity, hot-hearted wide-hearted devotion and love to the Lord Jesus. And certainly we would wind up by saying that worship involves the idea of praise, of giving thanks to him. I think the other night was North Carolina. I told you about a meeting on Thursday night. I didn't even get to preach. I came with my guns loaded. I was ready to preach. And all of a sudden things got to moving in that church. A fellow got up to sing a song and people started down the aisle weeping under conviction, bowed the altar, got their hearts right with God. And folks all around are standing up confessing their sin and wanting to get right with God. And then it just seemed like a great breath from heaven came and people began to praise God and give him thanks for what he had done in their hearts. Worship indeed involves the idea of praise of giving him thanks, of offering our, our heartfelt gratitude to him. So then here in heaven is a beautiful scene of worship before God. As you begin in reading this chapter, that's the first thing that attracts your attention. The great throne of God. There are three things actually in this chapter that I, I call your attention. There is the unforgettable throne, how unforgettable it is. There is the unforgettable throng that is the host of people who are worshiping. And there is as well the unforgettable thrill that seems to just leap out from the heart and being of those who bow in worship before God. Now, first of all, let me ask you to look at that unforgettable throne. It is a throne of mystery. Look at the mystery of that throne. And John said like this, and I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. Now two things particularly arrest your attention or three. That is his description of that throne, jasper of sardine or sardius stone. And then the, em the emerald colored rainbow that is around the throne of God. Now, what we're doing here, we're, we're launching out in territory that literally is unfamiliar to us. None of us have ever been to heaven. I heard a dear preacher friend of mine the other day who had suffered long with a very, uh, heart, a very severe heart attack, almost died. And he said, you know, I've never been to heaven, but he said, I have been to the city limits. Well, that's getting pretty close, don't you think? And yet again, here as you look into heaven, we're, we're dealing with areas that are unfamiliar to our eyes. And yet John, what John is doing is trying to describe to us in human vocabulary at least something of what that place is literally like as he views it in this vision of soul. And by the way, 
He says now is in the spirit. He said that once before. What he is saying of this passage is, I was not in the body. In other words, you, you hear today people talking about an out of the body experience. That's what John had. The spirit, John, in other words, in his spirit was lifted up yonder to them like Paul who had been stoned and was left for dead. And yet he said, uh, I, I, I was in the third heaven. His old body was down there bleeding in the ditch. But Paul said it's there. And so John is going to reveal to us this mystery of the throne. And he says, and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. Now, the stone, the jasper stone is a very hard stone. And yet it is not what we consider today as in the Greek text would reveal. But it has something of the resemblance of a diamond. A very clear, radiant diamond. The hardest of stone. And I think as you look at the throne here and the thought of divine government comes, we're dealing here with what we consider the divine judgment of God and the divine government of God. So what I see first in the Jasper Stone is a suggestion of the hardness, the hardness connected with divine government. And there is a hardness there indeed that relates to God. In simply, simple words, his laws are fixed and unchangeable. What God has said from eternity is fixed. Now men may want to change that. We have a lot of folks come over write all kind of different translations and they'll change up the word of God to suit themselves. But I'll tell you something, I don't care what a man does, says, writes, or does. The truth is God's laws are fixed at law. In reality, all science is predicated with the idea of the fixed laws of God in nature. Our astronauts would have never been able to land on the moon if there had not been some fixed laws that the creator God had established. And so it is by that very reason that even our weather forecasters and our newsmen or newswomen, whoever they may be, can tell you the exact time of the sunrise, the sunset, and so forth, they predict the times of the season. And yet, what it's all about is the fixed laws of God. Now, let me tell you something. No man really breaks the law of God. He may try to, but the law of God will break a man. In other words, that's what Jesus said. It'll fall on you and grind you to powder. And many a foolhardy man and woman has thought, oh, listen, I get by. I violate the law of God, the moral law of God. The ethical law of God, the spiritual law of God, no man can violate that fixed law and come away not punished and not dealt with as a result. You just don't do it. I don't care who you are, prince or pauper, poor or rich, or educated or uneducated, no man can violate that fixed law of God. So those rigid laws that God's established actually helps us even in the things of the world of science. But his moral laws are as inflexible as uh, those physical laws of God. Violate them and a man comes into severe problems in his life. And many a person, maybe somebody you seated right here in this service this morning, there are problems within your life because of a violation of God's moral law. Oh, that we'd get in this book, folks, and learn what God says and then say, Lord, by your grace, I'm going to apply this, that truth to my life and by your grace and your strength, I'm going to live by the law that you've given. And let me say again, God never gave one law but what it was designed for the benefit of man. 
No law that he ever gave was given for our detriment, but rather for law. When God said, thou shalt know other gods before me, that was not a law that dealt with himself. He's going to be God whether you have any other God before him or not. But the truth is, when men put other things between them and God and in the place of Almighty God, life falls into a maladjustment and you begin to suffer as a result. Not only that, but he said, thou shalt not steal. Many a person tried to be dishonest in word and action and conduct only to find that that very violation of the law gets them into trouble, gets them into trouble. We have an officer of the law sitting over here this morning who spend most of his time trying to uh, catch up with those who do break that. In other words, the truth is, what I want you to understand, you don't break the law of God and get by without a just dealing from God. Thou shalt not commit adultery. We live in a sex-saturated, sex-crazed age. But see, you don't violate that law of God and get by. You just thought you did. Somebody said, oh, nobody knows about it. Yeah, God does. And you don't violate that law and not reap as a result a harvest of severity in your life. You don't do that. The modern world in which we live, where uh, the gay society tries to pawn off on us that that's the normal way of life. I want to tell you this. They have, they have their convention in San Francisco and talk about all of the things we're going to have to do to solve the problem, but it'll never be solved if folks face it as sin. S-I-N, sin. And the thing that bothers many of us is we violated the law of God and we think we can correct the problem that's there without first of all saying, God, what I've done and what I am is sin. It's sin and I want you to forgive me and straighten this up in my life. You don't violate the law of God. The homosexual crowd tried to do that. We're plagued in our nation today with a death-dealing disease known as AIDS. You don't violate that law and get by. You can drink all the liquor you want to, but you don't violate the law that God set up for good health and not, and, and not suffer a consequence. You see, the truth is, no law of God can be violated without a just consequence. And so his laws as, as revealed, his government is revealed in this jasper stone, a hard substance. It reveals the severity of his rule. I read in the Psalms where one day he shall rule with a what? A rod of iron. That's severe, that's hard. Not only that, but he mentions the sardine or the sardius stone. That suggests the holiness which is connected with the divine government of God. The sardius stone is of a deep, fiery, flashing red color. It's like a ruby. And yet it suggests that very fact of that holy holiness of God. His, as our God is consuming fire. Uh, it suggests the fact of God's attitude towards sin as one of burning holiness. In other words, here's the fiery red uh, sardius stone that reminds us of that holiness of God. And yes, God's throne is founded upon his law and upon his holiness. His law and his holiness. Do you see, that is the reason when Jesus, the Son of God, became sin for us, he had to die. That's the holiness of God. The holiness of God demands that. The wages of sin is death. What demands that? The holiness of God. Why does a Christ-rejecting man or woman have to go to hell? It is because of the holiness of God. God cannot permit men who have flaunted his law and rejected his salvation and mercy to enter into heaven, else he would be an unholy God. And then again, when you put these two together, they speak of something else. They suggest the humanity of this divine government. 
You see, if you go back in the Old Testament, you'll find that the high priest wore, had, uh, wore 12 distinct stones, one for each tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel, and he wore it upon his person. The first and the last stones that the priest wore were the jasper and the sardius stone. And here we have an idea and a suggested thought of the humanity of our God. The humanity of our God. That is, he is God, yet indeed he was man. He is the first and the last, like the first stone and the last stone. And yet though God's divine government is holy and it is hard, yet it is executed with man in mind and the thought of man in the heart of God. Just like I said a minute ago. His law was designed for our benefit. His holiness to guard that very divine law of God for our benefit. So then you have here something of the mystery of the throne. But here you'll find also, and I'll, I'll mention this in just a moment, that there was a rainbow round about the throne. I think, we'll, let, let me, perhaps we ought to entitle this. We'll begin here at the second part of verse 3. You have a picture of the majesty of the throne of God. Now hang in there with me about six or seven more minutes. I want you to get this. The majesty of the throne of God. A description of God's throne. And yet at the same time, watch this. At the same time, it is a description of the judgment of God that will proceed from that throne based on his holy law and his holiness. On his holy law and his holiness that proceeds from this throne of God, divine judgment. And so I don't think we can help but see that. Divine judgment. I want you to look first of all at his judgment that proceeds from here. It is a flawless judgment. Notice the rainbow. It is circling the throne. Have you ever seen a full circle rainbow? You never have. It's an ark. But here the rainbow is not an arc, but it is a complete circle. Now, as a geometric symbol, this circular rainbow symbolizes perfection. It symbolizes completeness. Emerald is the color of the earth, green in its, in its glowing color. And God's judgment has to do with the earth, with the earth upon which man resides and, who, and, and, and has rebelled against God. In other words, men may subvert complete judgment. Not only is that a flawless judgment, but look at this, if you will. It is at those seated around the throne, which gives the picture of a formal kind of judgment. Verse 4, and round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats and so forth to four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. Now these seem to function as a jury, not to decide whether or not mankind is guilty, but rather to give approval and, and approval to God's very act of judgment upon this God-hating world. So here's the jury, 24 elders. Somebody said, who are they? Well, they're 24 elders. Some have said they are, and I think this is it, they are representatives. They are represented. In David's court, there were a, a, a course of 24 elders who sat uh, near the place of judgment. They were representatives of the people. 
And I believe that you'll find here in their description that they are clothed, notice verse 4, in white raiment and they had on their head crowns of gold. I think here it is representative of the church of our Lord, the body of Christ. Some have said perhaps the Old and the New Testament saints. But be that as may, they're the representatives and they sit there upon seats or thrones and God said of the overcomer that he'll sit with me in my throne even as I am seated. Throne speaks of authority. God has given the child of God, the overcomer, that place of authority and he has said that we will rule and reign with him. In other words, the church, the body of Christ, represents these, these 24 elders. Indeed, we will reign with our Lord Jesus when he comes to reign on this earth. We will be a part of his ruling cabinet, so to speak. So then here you'll find there is a formal judgment. In other words, these are seated round the throne. There are so many things that are suggestive here that we don't have time to go into. And I hope you understand that. Not only that, but notice a fearful judgment. A fearful judgment. Notice that verse 5. And out of the throne, and by the way, let me just mention verse 4. I notice again the crowns. It is never said that angels are crowned, but the Bible talks about the crowns that are given to the believer the overcomer's crown, the martyr's crown, the crown of faithfulness, the crown of life, the crown of righteousness. These crowns are upon the heads of these. Watch verse 5. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now here is the uh, picture of the fearfulness of the judgment of God. The sounds of thunder, the flashes of lightning. Now when you see that, let me ask you this. When you see that just around here, what do you, what's your thought? A storm's coming. And that's exactly what John is seeing here. God's saying a storm's coming. There's lightnings and thunders. There's the fierceness of his judgment. Remember back in Exodus when the Lord gave Moses the commandments upon Mount Sinai, there was the same thing, the thunders and lightnings, the shaking of the very earth. It was the prelude of a severe storm. And certainly there's nothing more fearful than one of those full-blown tropical storms or even as sometimes we have here, though we're not in the tropics, it's a fearful thing. And so here are the lightnings, the thunderings that speak of this fearfulness of the judgment of Almighty God. No wonder the writer in Hebrews 10, 31 said, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You see, men can snob God and cuss God and ignore God in these days. I want to tell you something. There's coming a day when God's mercy will come to, will be withdrawn. God's grace will be withheld and judgment will come upon Christ rejecting God despising men and women. Man has not gotten away with his sin whatsoever. Not only that, but it is a, a fearful judgment. It's a factual judgment. Notice how it is suggested here in the latter part of verse 5. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now we've seen that mention of the seven spirits of God before. That is not an indication that there are seven Holy Spirits. The number seven, as you remember, I said a moment, is a number of completion, a number of perfection. And here we have the completeness of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah talked about that, uh, that great uh, many-fold ministry of the Spirit the spirit of counsel, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of the Lord, and so forth, upon the Messiah. And here then we have the seven spirits of God. 
In other words, I think you find here in the, in the view of judgment, of divine government, you have here uh, the, the Holy Spirit presented as the divine prosecutor, as the prosecutor. He who knows every thought, every deed, every motive, every action, every moment of our life, he is the prosecutor. Listen, he is not prosecuting from the dark. The seven spiritual God, wisdom, knowledge, all of these things. And Jesus even said of him in John 16, 8, and when he is coming, he will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment. And the word reprove is a legal term. It's the word of a prosecutor who brings all the evidence to bear, all of the facts. And that's what the Spirit of God will do in this time of judgment. Listen, he knows everything there is to know about you. Man, there's nothing you can hide. You can't bribe the judge. You can't bribe the one who sits on the throne. It is, a, it is indeed a factual judgment. And then it's a final judgment. A final judgment. Look at what John sees next. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. A sea of glass. There is nothing more fluctuating and changeable than the sea. I mean it changes. You, you, you go down out of the seashore, it's never the same for one moment. I mean, it just changes constantly, tossing back and forth. But watch this sea is not water, but it's glass. A sea of glass. Glass suggests something that is no longer fluid. It is unchanging. Glass is transparent and fixed. In other words, that's the reason we say that here in view of the throne of judgment, it is a final judgment. God's judgment will be fixed beyond any recall. No other appeal. The law of God, the holiness of God, it is fixed and it is before his throne. And then watch again. Notice it is a fundamental judgment. You'll see what I mean by that. Notice the beasts that are full of eyes, the living creatures that are full of eyes. These are the cherubims. You have read of the cherubim before. You first meet them in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were driven out and the cherubim were there with flaming sword, guarding the way. You'll meet them again in the tabernacle where there in the tabernacle they are uh, at, the, uh, uh, at the place of the mercy seat, the cherubim that are there. Now then that, those two things speak of two things where you find in relation to Adam and Eve, it speaks of the the creatorial rights, the righteous creator. When you see the cherubim there at the mercy seat, it speaks of, their, uh, of, of the redemptive rights of our God. And you see, our God created this world. He created everything that's in it. He is the one responsible for this world, for this planet, for this system. And yet man has gone away, but God has offered mercy and here you'll find the redemptive right of God. God had a right to create. He has the perfect right and authority indeed to redeem. So what I'm saying here is this, that the, this very, uh, the, the cherubim who are full of eyes suggests that the issue uh, uh, being decided here concerns those two things, the creatorial rights, who has the right to this earth. In chapter five, you're gonna see something about that. What was that strange sealed scroll that no one had authority and right to open. Read it in chapter 5. I'll talk to you about that 
in our next message. But the whole story is here, this judgment deals with a fundamental factor. The right of God over creation, the right of God over redemption. The, the, the one who created, but the one who redeems. And finally, let me say this. His judgment is a fatal judgment. Notice in chapter 4, there is no lamb, no sacrifice, no offering for the sins and the wickedness of men. Where is the lamb, you want to cry? Like Isaac who cried to his father when he's taken him up there to offer him as a sacrifice. I see the fire, the wood. You have the sword in your hand. But father, where is the lamb? How fatal the judgment where there is no lamb, no sacrifice, no offer of mercy, no offer of redemption. My friend, I'm glad I can tell you this morning that we are living in what is known as the age of grace. God has given us a span in which to repent. We're living in the age of the church where men are simply invited to come to Christ. But you see, when God sets up his throne of judgment, it's not going to be by invitation. It's going to be by a summons. You're invited to trust Christ as your Savior, but you're going to be summoned to appear before God if you reject him and live in your sin. When you get a summons from the court, if you don't respond, you know what happened? The sheriff will come pick you up and take you there. And the whole story is you may not bow your knee now when there is mercy and forgiveness offered, but there's coming a day when you'll bow your knee whether you want to bow it or not. Imagine to bow before such a throne as this throne that John envisioned in this vision of heart, the throne of God. I wanted to say as I read this the other day, as I've read it oftentimes, the song just kept coming up my heart that we sing at Christmas time. Oh, come, let us adore him. He who is seated upon the throne. And listen, John couldn't even describe him. He just said, it's kind of like this. No description. No word could ever describe him. But one day, listen, you'll meet that God. Remember, his law is fixed, unchanging. He is a holy God. But you can meet him today as Savior and forgiver of all your sins. And I pray that right now you'll make your choice to receive him as your Savior. God help you to do it. Let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, we give opportunity to people who have heard thy word today. Thank you that in this time of grace and mercy, you extend invitations. And we're glad, Lord, that in your stead, we can offer an invitation to people in this group today to come to Christ. And Father, help us to realize that unless men do, they will be summoned before that throne. What a fearful thought. Lord, I'm glad today that by the death of your son on the cross and the shedding of his blood, our sins can be remitted and forgiven. And I pray for anybody here now that needs to make that move of heart to trust Christ. May they do it. Maybe, Father, there's one of your children here, all so far away from you in their life, their heart's grown cold and indifferent. They've indulged in sin and now their heart is indifferent. May they come to you asking your forgiveness. Then Lord, maybe somebody here needs to come in the fellowship of our church. We pray that you'll help them to do that. Be honored by the decisions that are made today and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.